Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. From WHQR Public Media, I'm your host, Camille Mojica. This week, Ben joins us to talk about media literacy and AI. And then Kelly actually interviews me this time about a story I have coming out soon. And then we talk to Rachel about the future of journalism. Stay tuned. Media Literacy Week was this past week, and it's something that has become ever more important as the world continues to go day by day with more and more conflict. And there's a lot of noise in the journalism world, and it can be really hard to navigate it if you don't know what to look for. Ben joins us now to talk about a panel that he was a part of that talks about things in media literacy. Welcome back to the Keep Your Rundown. I'm here with Ben Shockman. Hi, Cammie. Hello, Ben. You are here to talk to us about a super fun, cool event that you did and participated in. And I made the graphic for. What was it? That's true. This was a media panel that was held at UNCW. Uh, we actually had a ton of events this week, but this one was a lot of fun. Um, it, we've been talking about it for months and months and months, and we just kind of wanted to get some people from the journalism world together for a panel to talk about what we all kind of go through. Okay, so this was a media literacy panel, correct? That is correct. And it was called Navigating Ambiguity. So when we talk about ambiguity, what do you mean? Well, there's lots of different ways that you could, you know, look at that. I think that was part of the point. Uh, It was very academic feeling, (laughs) you know. I mean, they are college kids, right? Yeah, so ambiguity meaning how do you deal with stories that aren't clear cut? How do you deal with the ambiguity that's sort of developed around everything that's between straight news, like AP and Reuters, and straight opinion piece? You know, like something that's labeled an opinion piece in the newspaper. There's a lot of stuff in between that. So that's kind of ambiguity. There's also, I mean, there's lots of little things we talk that maybe people don't even realize, like sponsored content. Oh. Which is, you know, written by someone outside of the newsroom usually a corporation, and presented very much in the style of... The paper. Of the paper. And this takes on all different kinds of forms. There's a great uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver about the TV version of this. Huh. Um, But there's also, you'll see it in newspapers and on digital websites. And depending on, I'm just going to say it, depending on the ethics of that outlet sometimes it gets a big you know box around it that says this is sponsored content presented by so and so so it's really clear and sometimes there's just a little itty bitty like sentence at the bottom that says this was sponsored content <laughs> so again it can be really ambiguous about are you reading you know quality journalism done under the editorial mast of a trusted institution or are you reading an ad interesting i actually didn't think about that sponsored content oh yeah so, and then, you know, that was kind of the springboard, but we, we got into other questions like AI and, you know, the, the financial models of journalism. So super quick to backtrack, it wasn't just you that was at this panel. No, no. And in fact, <laughs> um, I think the big draw was uh, Fran Weller, a uh, friend of the show, Fran Weller. <laughs> From WECT. Longtime journalist and anchor at WECT News. And also um, our, uh, our co-collaborator for the recent uh, forums, that we did for candidates, uh, Brenna Flanagan, 
from Port City Daily. And that was fun for some of the students who came to this meeting because Brenna was the editor-in-chief at the Seahawk, which is the student paper really? at UNCW. And she got hired at, at Port City Daily right out of the Seahawk. I had actually wanted to hire her. Um, but then I then I quit. <laughs> Port City Daily. That's super cool, though. So they got to see their previous, yeah, yeah. you know, like a someone who graduated. They were like, oh, she worked at our yeah. paper. And so, um, and I said this with no disrespect, Brenda's like brand new in the journalism world um, and has, you know, a, a very youthful outlook on things and is optimistic about things. I am old and cynical. And Fran has somehow, in over her amazing career, come back around to optimism <laughs> around things. But you got a lot of... You got a lot of different points of view, you know, and I obviously work in public radio. Brenna works for a for-profit digital disruptor style reporter and Fran works for very much establishment local TV news. So we all kind of see things from different points of view. I was going to say, we've got the different webs of journalists here. Yeah, but we all know each other. We've all, you know, put on events together. We've all worked on stories together. So I, I think that was what made it fun. Okay, so you talked about AI. I'm sorry. I really need to ask. I what saw this, your face light up. I need to see what this question was. What was it about? So it was a multifaceted question. Again, this was very academic. <laughs> um, this was, you know, you had to you had to show up smart for this for this forum. But part of the question was just, you know, pretty cut and dry. Are you using AI right now? Okay, like and, like they were asking the panel members. Yeah. Okay. And so none of us are using AI. Right now, and then we stop, and we're like, actually, we do use AI for transcription software. Oh my gosh! We actually all use different software programs, but we use um, for people who don't know, we have something called Otter. There's dozens of different programs that do this, but you feed in audio, and then it spits out a transcript of us. And it is interesting to see over the years it has learned. It now, for example, um, we frequently record county commissioners, so it recognizes some of their voices and will label them. Oh. And it's gotten better, not just at recognizing individual voices and at getting, especially the southern accent, um, the coastal accent has some some quirks that don't line up with how they're phonetically spelled. Oh, my gosh. So when I'm looking at the transcriptions of county commissioner meetings and it says Rob Zappel, that's not you guys typing that in. No, it has learned. His voice. His voice. And he at one point has said, you know, I'm Commissioner Rob Zappel. And it learned it. Um it's also getting very good at doing baby like deckheads, um, like individual like section dividers. Like yes, and it says speaker one, speaker two, speaker three of separate. Oh, yeah, so I didn't even realize that I was no- AI. I noticed this a few months ago where there was a conversation I had had, and it showed you know like at the five minute mark you're talking about this, at the ten minute mark you're talking about this, and it and it was a phrase that no one had used. No one had actually said those words, but it was like a fairly good summation of what we were talking about at that point in the conversation. So that's AI. Otter.ai. Well, it's literally called otter.ai. It is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, so we are using AI. We are using AI, but we but there's always a human that goes behind and checks it because sometimes Otter does some hilarious mistakes. I know. Like Slack also has their own um, transcription and it likes to cor- correct my name to Kimchi Mojica. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I love it. Kimchi Mo- DJ Kimchi Moika. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so if you've ever done voice to text on your phone, that's also AI. Um, it gets to know your voice. It gets to know your speech patterns and gets better at guessing. If you hold, if you have an iPhone, you hold up and you'll say something. It'll give sometimes a pretty bad transcription. And then if you wait for a second, it'll update using what it knows. 
That's crazy. Yeah, but we always have a human who comes behind and checks it, and that's we we all had the same answer. Now that's not true for everyone. There are news outlets that are using AI. I've heard Gannett might be using it um, for for what writing. That's the idea. Um, I think was it BuzzFeed that said they might use it. I can't remember, but you're gonna see it. You're gonna see AI in the news industry. Uh, one thing we did talk about is that there's a lot of doom and gloom around AI. And there probably should be. But we have a couple of spaces where AI can be incredibly useful. Again, a human would have to go behind and check on this. But for example, imagine training um, AI to basically crawl the web, find live streamed meetings from every government agency in a 50-mile region, transcribe them all, look for a set of keywords like issue, problem, question, angry tenant, <laughs> angry voter, whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to find. And you could turn this all into a really easily navigatable, searchable, public-facing free database. And what that would do for news deserts would be incredible. Mm. Of course, you have to have a human to go behind and check because you can't just you can't trust the machines. So anyway, yeah, we talked about AI. We talked about um, just the finances of news because uh, it's interesting. All three of our outlets make money in different ways. Um, so we have our pledge drives. We have our pledge drives. We're supported. Uh, we, we get a small amount of funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, but most of it comes from listeners. You, you, the person right listening. Now, if you've donated, thank you. If not, donate. Um, but yeah, you make this possible. That's that's how that's how public radio pretty much works. TV news is powered by advertising, obviously, um, and the online version is powered by digital ads. And then Port City Daily has kind of a hybrid model that I got to experience while I was there. We were initially entirely funded by uh, digital ads. Okay. And that did not cover everything. So what did you guys add? We were losing money. So what did you add to it? So we added a paywall. Oh, so it's it's a mix of both. So it's a mix of paywall and um, and digital advertising. And when I was there, I tried very hard to try and steal the public radio model. Um, and and try to convince people that don't think of it as a paywall. Think of it as you're becoming a member. You're helping to support local journalism. You're not paying for a thing you want to read. Mm, I don't yeah. know how successful I was, but that's like that's how <laughs> I felt like that's... that would tap into what people care about. Because sometimes, sometimes you just you, the paywall breaks you. You're like, I really want to watch this episode. I really want to read this article. And there's a paywall, and you finally like break down. But there are other people who you know. Just want to know that there's good journalism out there. Yeah, I mean, I remember when the New York Times did their article about the Uvalde shooting and what, um, you know, NATO rounds do to a human body. Oof, and yeah. uh, people were really upset that it was stuck behind a paywall because they were like, this is super relevant, you know, important information. And it's stuck behind a paywall. And then the New York Times said, OK, fine. Sorry. Yes, there is a local outlet and I won't say who. That kept some of its coverage about a hurricane behind the paywall. Wow. And uh, that made people super mad, and I don't blame them. No, I mean, it makes it makes sense, and it's understandable. But, you know, I think it's super interesting that moving to digital world, for at least the digital outlets, what advertising and money and revenue has had to look like for them. Yeah, and there's always that concern that there will be perverse incentives that you will do certain kinds of stories because they get clicks. Oh. Or because you think they will make people subscribe, not because it's good for 
democracy, lowercase d democracy, yeah. or, or good for you know civil engagement. The, the motive is is profit. Is this your cynical side speaking? Was Brent? Did Brenna feel the same way? <laughs> I think we all sort of felt like every every finance model comes with some potential pitfalls, mm-hmm. and so it's something we're all still navigating. And local news is especially you know trouble because of the newspaper world and it's kind of unfair because there was no representative from the newspaper world there. Yeah. But newspapers have been the victims of evisceration. <laughs> More yeah. more than other places um, because you simply can't run a local TV news show without a certain number of people. But we've definitely seen local, quote-unquote, local papers become just repeaters for regional content. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why we decided to reach out and go to our neighboring counties because we thought that they were probably having the same issue. We met some of the reporters at... Um, at the conference that I went to with Rachel and Kelly. Yeah, the local news conference in Elon. Yes. It's a great example of, of journalists working together. So, all right, but in general, yeah, th- those were those are the questions we got. It was it was great to hear from the public about um, what what they think about. The big takeaway question at the end, which I think is, I don't know if there's an answer. It's more of like a process. But it's, you know, what is, um, what is a balanced media diet? Like how, how, do you, how do you handle the news? There's so much of it, um, of varying quality and cost, and bias, and how do you how do you deal with it? That's a question that we're posing to you right now. Yeah, go home and think about that. <laughs> think about, you know, some of the things we heard was, you know, there are definitely people acknowledged that they they go for the dopamine hit of just reading the news or watching the news they know is gonna mm-hmm. line up with their beliefs. Like, Super interesting that they said that though. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think, if you know, like if you're a college kid watching like The Daily Show at The Daily Show's peak. <laughs> yes. Um, you're just getting like confirmation of everything you believe. Exactly. With some ha-has. Um, so, yeah, it can be difficult to say, all right, I'm going to read the Wall Street Journal editorial page and get really mad. Yes. <laughs> but see what they have to say. Like, I'm going to read The New Republic and I'm going to read The Nation and I'm going to read, you know, centrists at the Atlantic and I'm going to read liberals at Mother Jones. Um, it's it's tough. It's tough to, you know, subject yourself to stuff you know you're going to disagree with as like, I'm going to eat these vegetables, damn it. <laughs> but I have to do it. But I have to. So, yeah, that was, uh, we really enjoyed it. Um, I hope we can do it again next year. This was for Media Literacy Week, which was still this week, so that's what we were celebrating. That's why we did it this week, right in the middle of election coverage. I was going <laughs> to say. like an insane time to do it. Wonderful time. Yeah. Ben, thank you for being in the studio with me this week, and thank you for representing us at Media Literacy Week. Uh, happy to do both. This segment, we're going to do a little bit of a switcheroo. Kelly is going to interview me about a story that I have coming out pretty soon, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. I'm here with Camille Mojica. Hello, Kelly. <laughs> the tables have turned. They have. So I am here to ask you a little bit about your story about psychiatric care availability here in the Cape Fear region. Can you give me a general gist of this story? Yeah, so basically the Cape Fear region is lacking a long-term psychiatric facility. Everything that we have nearby is short-term, and then the closest place that people can go to for long-term care is two hours away. Jeez, how'd you come across this? So actually, I was just doing some research about the behavioral health hospital over at NHRMC, 
and it has two stars on Google. So I decided to read through the reviews and one of the reviews was left by a mother, her name is Deborah Marlowe, about her son's very traumatizing experience over in their ER when he needed to be committed because he was having a psychotic episode. He has schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where the story started and it branched off from there because I was wondering, why don't we have a long-term unit? Because after he was committed for about two days, he was in the ER and then they were going to send him over to Cherry Hospital, which is the one that's two hours away. So I was like, why are they sending him all the way to Cherry Hospital? I thought they could keep him at the Behavioral Health Hospital here. Turns out they can't. Wow. So how did this become a longer project? Again, I <laughs> honestly, I'm thinking about it now and I'm like, I don't even know the exact part where it started to branch off. But once I started asking the question of why we don't have a longer term care facility here, I had to actually ask our hospital for their you know, input, why don't we have long-term care over at NHRMC? And they basically said, well, we're not licensed to do that. We are short-term psychiatric stabilization, and then we will send them somewhere else. Then I was like, I have to talk to someone over at NCDHHS because I need to know how the state hospitals work. And NCDHHS, for those in the audience, is? The North Carolina... <laughs> Department of Health and Human Services. Yes, sorry. I get very caught up and I can't say that very quickly, but yes. And they are the ones that are in charge of the state-run hospitals. So I was like, oh my god, I don't know anything about our state-run hospitals, so I had to talk to them. And they were basically telling me, well, we've, we only have three state hospitals. We've never had any other ones. That's just how it's always been. And that's how a story can snowball into, gosh, we have a region of half a million people and they don't have access to this important care. Yes, actually NHRMC serves a nine county area, the adjacent counties, um, and the population is close to a million people as of 2021. And it's not a long-term psychiatric care facility, which is why I was like, this is crazy. Yeah, that is so crazy. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about solutions journalism. What do you think could be done to solve this problem? So everything, you know, you'll hear in part three stems back to insurance and how insurance works in North Carolina. Um, I get into kind of the weeds of it to explain the different types of plans and all that kind of stuff. But basically, our state was one of the last states to actually implement Medicaid expansion. So leading up to the expansion, you know, Medicaid was not able to cover so much stuff, which makes it hard for a majority of people in North Carolina to get behavioral health care, especially in our Cape Fear region. Um, that was one of the biggest issues with access is that people don't have insurance or they're underinsured. So they were not able to get any sort of behavioral health care. So now that it's expanded, is there a chance for things to get better? Yes, absolutely. So the state is actually putting in, it's a historic amount, a lot, a lot of money into behavioral health with this Medicaid expansion, because we've realized that the state of North Carolina as a whole is very much lacking. I mean, overdose rates have gone up, suicide rates in the state have gone up. So there is an issue here. So the state was basically like, let's, we're gonna need to put more money in this area. I spoke to the COO of Trillium, who takes care of our county, the LME MCO, and she was like, I'm, I'm really hopeful that with this Medicaid expansion, people will be able to get the help that they need. 
What is an LME MCO? So the LME MCOs are basically the companies that oversee insurance. So the state will give Trillium money and then Trillium will dole out the money to our medical facilities here. Wild. That does not exist in other states that way. Exactly. So I have to explain in my article how the insurance works here because that's where it gets super complicated about who is able to get money through Medicaid and who is not. What a cool and special state we live in. It, yeah. Cammie, thank you for telling us about your cool story. Thank you. WHQR's Rachel Keith went to Williston Middle School to talk about journalism. And she joins us now to talk about her story coming out on Monday in a little bit more detail for an extended segment. Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. I'm here with Rachel Keith. Hi, Rachel. Hello. This week, Rachel is here to talk to us about a super cool story that she did. And I'm excited because we get to hear from some wonderful kids. From where? From Williston Middle School. So why did you go to Williston Middle School? Yes, so I um, met Matt Sullivan at one of these teacher roundtables that I was covering. And he said, oh my gosh, we, since I'm in the media, we are restarting our Williston Sun paper. Would you want to come and talk to the students about what you do, what it means to be a reporter? Because they're starting to do some of their reporting of their own and I said sure but then I thought what a great experience or opportunity to get parental permission to talk to some of the students about what their first issue was about and he did send me Matt Sullivan the teacher who's helping to do this along with uh, Kate Deal so he sent me the paper and I asked them questions about what I read in their paper so their paper the their are students who are in eighth grade. Yes, they are eighth graders. They're not high schoolers. That's right. So eighth graders, right. 12 to 13 year olds. I'm thinking of what I was like back at that age. I don't think I was nearly as, what's the word I'm thinking of? Engaged. Yeah, these these (laughs) kids were really engaged, the ones that I talked to. I was really impressed with them. Okay, so you spoke to the editor of their paper. I did. It's so cool to to call her the editor of the paper. That's right, yeah. What did she have to say? What What was their, like, mission behind reviving the paper? She really wanted to reestablish student voices, and you'll hear uh, this on my upcoming reporting on that will drop on Monday, October 30th. Um, so she just wants to get uh, student topics out, things that they also did surveys to ask students what they were concerned about, if they felt accepted or um, if they felt like supported at the school. And so they're in engaging in some real reporting, asking people how they feel and collecting data. I mean, they sent out a Google sheet to get those responses so that they could write about them. Okay, so bringing back student voices. Now, you said part of their paper is that they have an opinion section. This is so cool because their paper is like, it's like a paper, an actual paper. Yeah, it's mostly, it's all online. um, But but yeah, they have QR codes around the school so that kids can go and um, just take a picture and read it. Yeah, that's super cool. So you said that they have an opinion section, kind of like a normal, a normal newspaper. What goes into this opinion section? So they did ask uh, the students how they, they feel or how they feel accepted at school or any other issues that are, you know, that they want to bring attention to. I think our main goal 
It's just basically to have our students heard and explain because not, not all students get their voices out because it's just the factor of you got to listen to your teachers and get good grades and that's it. But like we, we want to be acknowledged for what we have to say in things too so we can like somewhat decide our futures. I love that she said it's expected that kids listen to their teachers while they're at school, but I think sometimes we forget that kids are still human beings, you know, that they also have opinions and feelings and thoughts. I think it's super cool that this paper gives them a place to communicate that. Yeah, and it, it did seem like a more of a collegial atmosphere when I was there with the two teachers that were there, Matt Sullivan and Kate Deal. They're working with the kids and showing them that their voices do matter, and I think that's really important. Of course, they're there to learn from educators and adults, and yes, they are still kids, but you know, they do have thoughts and feelings about their reality in the world. So one of the issues that they did bring up was the absence of mirrors in their bathrooms and they do have feelings and thoughts about it. So can you tell us like, why is that happening? What's going on? Yeah, I, I reached out to the district and to the principal. I haven't heard back yet, but what I heard was that there was maybe an incident a couple years back where there was a safety issue. Potentially someone had broken the mirror and used it as a weapon and they just have never, it sounds like they haven't put them back in. And so it came up in the paper. So I read about it and I said, huh, what, what's going on here? So I asked the students about this and here's Izzy Vasquez. She is the editor for the paper. We used to have mirrors in our bathrooms, but then something happened and we're not allowed to have mirrors anymore because of a safety issue. It's a nice thing to have mirrors in the bathroom in like non-breakable mirrors. It's a thing like it might be a little bit more expensive, but it makes the students happier and not uh, sneak their phone anymore. So what they were telling me was that, yeah, they have to look at themselves on their phones or <laughs> even even the reflection of one of the paper towel holders. And so they, they want to they want those in the bathroom is what they're saying. I mean, yeah, at that age, you go to the bathroom and you want to make sure that like your hair and your bangs are perfect. There's no like flyaways or anything. I can imagine that they would like the mirrors. Yeah. And you'll hear in my story, uh, we heard from Day and she talked about, I get it. She, she was playing the reporter hat. Like I get the student's point of view and I get the safety issue. And that's really important as a reporter is that you bring the perspectives to the table. It's super interesting that these are kids, but... They're super forward thinking, yeah. you know, like they're already thinking about the hard hitting issues when it comes to journalism the way we do. I mean, I don't think I was thinking about merging perspectives and things like that until I went to journalism school and I was like 18 years old. Yeah, they can see it. And um, you're going to hear from Amia Lopez in a minute. But it was funny. You'll hear on the um, my story on Monday, she voiced something that I also <laughs> have issues with she said when she interviewed the football team she said I wish they would have said more and I said yes Amia sometimes <laughs> when I do interviews come on give me a little more or could you explain that more and one word answer and yeah I just love that she's already getting that experience of you know and I tried to give her some ideas on how to go a little deeper with people and you know get them to explain and loosen up a little more so that was that was a good experience so the super cool thing about this paper is you know we're saying that it gives the students a voice but i think it's important that it, it points out some issues that students have with the school and we're going to hear from amia lopez and she actually says what the school is known for so it's super interesting that in the paper they get to communicate so they get to communicate well we do have some concerns 
I have visited Moto Grove Middle School, and they have the females. They have murals and they restroom. So I feel like if we did over here, it would have been better. Because we, we are at Williston. They say we're the best school under the sun. So if we improve these things, then maybe, you know, it can get a little more acknowledgement than it was back then. I, she's saying that this is a, a school that I am proud of and yeah. the community is proud of. And, you know, we can do it. We can figure out a solution here. Um, and, you know, journalism, you, you share the perspectives. You're not tied to the outcome. You know, we write about things in our community and it's up to the leaders to decide what to do or the public to decide what to do. But I just think it was really great that they were bringing attention to, like you said, a concern that they had or the student body had, and they found it out through their survey. And, you know, Kelly Knoyer did that with the community agenda. What's on your mind mm-hmm. to improve the city of Wilmington? They're already starting those types of um, discoveries, and I, that's really forward thinking. I think what's super cool is we heard from Iz, um, Izzy. She's the editor at the paper about <laughs> she said non-breakable mirrors are a thing. I do like that because it kind of ties into our idea of solutions journalism right right we don't just point out what the problem is we also try and see if there's potential solutions and report on that too because it's nice to know that there are potential solutions instead of just reporting the negative and not really knowing how to proceed from there but like she said (laughs) unbreakable mirrors are a thing yeah and i think it's uh really important too when we discuss you know the role of a reporter and journalism in general you know williston is a great school and all great schools have their problems and they continue to be great if you address them and talk about ways to improve and so they, they are very excited about what they're doing. They're proud of their school. They're proud of their teachers. Their teachers are proud of them. And so, you know, I just hope that they can continue asking these hard questions of people and bringing out these hard things that maybe don't get talked about. So what are some other things that they're looking forward to doing as the paper is kind of getting off the ground? Yeah, they're going to talk to teachers next month and see, you know, I just think that it's really great that they want to hear from teachers, too, not just the kids. They want to hear. I really like how it's the kid interviewing the teacher rather than the other way around. That's right. Yeah. And they're really involved in their last article. They they went in and talked to some Port City Java employees and really? said, what do you like about your work and what's on the menu? <laughs> yes. So they're doing things like that. You heard um, or sorry, in my reporting on Monday, you'll hear from Naris, who interviewed someone who works in our local community. Um, they are covering, you know, the events, uh, sports events at the school. So it is it's a well-rounded paper. They have some hard hitting issues. They have an opinion section. They have a sports section. Um, their last episode, their last issue, they interviewed their new principal. So they're doing the work of the topics of a, of a general paper. So you were invited into the classroom to help teach you know, kind of the fundamentals of journalism. What does it mean to be a journalist? And I think it's super cool because HQR, we've been doing that with a couple of other schools. Yes, um, Kelly Knoyer has gone into um New Hanover High School and Ashley High School and we've brought in audio equipment and showed those students how to use audition and how to write an uh, audio story and we're hoping to continue that with the Williston students. We might not be as in-depth as a high school class but we're going to come in and try to teach them some basics and this first um, meeting that I had with them 
you know, Mr. Sullivan um, gave them a general lesson about writing. But when I was there, I just wanted them to ask me questions like, what do you want to know? You're writing right now. Like what comes front to mind? And I think when you use do that, the students are more engaged because I'm not saying this is what you need to know. I'm saying, what do you want to know or what do you want to ask me? And they had some really great questions. You know, they asked about my beat. They asked about the hardest story I did. And that was hard to talk about. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was talking about the school book ban. Um, and that was about a, uh, almost a year of reporting and a lot of different points of view, a lot of documents that I had to go through. Um, you know, it was a continuing point of discussion in the community, and I talked about that. Um, so they were really eager to get started and to understand what, what I have to go through as, as a journalist in this community. I, that's so exciting just because kids are the future of everything and you know I think it's super fun the idea of getting to get younger kids excited about journalism whether or not they decide to do it as oh, sure. you know their thing in in college at least they had the experience of oh I got to meet a reporter and a reporter told me what their job is like and I got to learn that they get to look over documents and talk to all sorts of people and I think the super fun thing about being audio reporters is that we actually get to go out in the field and record stuff like you recorded these kids in the classroom for your story that's right yeah their voice is really powerful I mean they they make the story their voices I mean that's the highlight not necessarily my narration of what they said or the context around it but they their voices speaking to the audience. And I will say the class is pretty large. And, you know, if they don't go into journalism, that's great. But at least they have the foundations to be a civically engaged person. Because if you're a voter, you do have to read news and consume it and kind of understand what's going on in your world so you can make an informed choice as a voter. Well, Rachel, thank you for being in the studio with me this week. And we are looking forward to your story, which comes out on Monday. Yep. Thank you so much for listening to the Cape Fear Rundown. Check out our show notes for relevant links and titles to the music we use this week. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or just general feedback, feel free to shoot me an email at cmojica, that's M-O-J-I-C-A, at whqr.org, or you can find me on X at Cami Reports. I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Camille Mojica, and I'll see you next week. Episode 60, baby, officially over the hill. Actually, I don't know if I want to say that because some of our listeners may be 60 years old, and I don't want you to think that I am calling you old. I promise I'm not. 60 episodes is just super exciting for me because that means it's been 60 whole weeks of CFR, which is more than a year. Wow. CFR has been made possible by listeners just like you. Not just from donations and helping us keep the station afloat and helping pay my salary, but your engagement with WHQR and the news and your excitement to hear from us and learn more about your community and read our reporting has really made doing this podcast exciting for me. It makes me happy to come to work every single day to talk about super cool issues with everyone else in the newsroom, and even I get to learn from the other talented journalists in our newsroom. Really, thank you so much for listening to the Cape Fear Rundown. Episode 60, in the can, next week, 61.